Section 38 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 38. On Household Gods and Goblins Some time ago, I went with some children to see Maeterlinck's fine and delicate fairy play about the bluebird that brought everybody happiness. For some reason or other, it did not bring me happiness, and even the children were not quite happy. I will not go so far as to say that the bluebird was a blue devil, but it left in us something seriously like the blues. The children were partly dissatisfied with it, because it did not end with a day of judgment, because it was never revealed to the hero and heroine that the dog had been faithful and the cat faithless, for children are innocent and love justice, while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. But there was something wrong about the bluebird, even from my more mature and corrupt point of view. There were several incidental things I did not like. I did not like the sentimental passage about the love affair of two babes unborn. It seemed to me a piece of what may be called bad berry, and logically it spoilt the only meaning of the scene, which was that the babes were looking to all earthly experiences as things inconceivable. I was not convinced when the boy exclaimed, There are no dead, for I am by no means sure that he, or the dramatist, knew what he meant by it. I heard a voice from heaven cry, Blessed are the dead. I do not know all that is meant in that, but I think the person who said it knew. But there was something more continuous and clinging in the whole business which left me vaguely restless, and I think the nearest to a definition was that I felt as if the poet were condescending to everything, condescending to pots and pans and birds and beasts and babies. The one part of the business which I really felt to be original and suggestive was the animation of all the materials of the households, as if with familiar spirits, the spirit of fire, the spirit of water, and the rest. And even here I felt a faint difference which moved me to an imaginary comparison. I wonder that none of our medievalists have made a morality or allegorical play founded on the canticle of St. Francia, which speaks somewhat similarly of brother fire and sister water. It would be a real exercise in Gothic craftsmanship and decoration to make these symbolic figures at once stiff and fantastic. If nobody else does this, I shall be driven to spoil the idea myself, as I have spoiled so many other rather good ideas in my time. But the point of the parallel at the moment is merely this, that the medieval poet does strike me as having felt about fire like a child, while the modern poet felt about it like a man talking to children. Few and simple as are the words of the older poem, it does somehow convey to me that when the poet spoke of fire as untamable and strong, he felt it as something that might conceivably be feared as well as loved. I do not think the modern poet feared the nursery fire as a child who loved it might fear it. And this elemental quality in the real primitives brought back to my mind something I have always felt about this conception, which is the really fine conception in the bluebird. I mean something like that which the heathens embodied in the images of the household gods. The household gods, I believe, were carved out of wood, 
which makes them even more like the chairs and tables. The nomad and the anarchist accuse the domestic ideal of being merely timid and prim. But this is not because they themselves are bolder or more vigorous, but simply because they do not know it well enough to know how bold and vigorous it is. The most nomadic life today is not the life of the desert, but of the industrial cities. It is by a very accurate accident that we talk about a street Arab, and the Semitic description applies to not a few gutter snipes whose gilded chariots have raised them above the gutter. They live in clubs and hotels and are often simply ignorant, I might almost say innocent, of the ancient life of the family, and certainly of the ancient life on the farm. When a townsman first sees these things directly and intimately, he does not despise them as dull, but rather dreads them as wild, as he sometimes takes a tame cow for a wild bull. The most obvious example is the hearth which is the heart of the home. A man living in the lukewarm air of centrally heated hotels may be said to have never seen fire. Compared to him, the housewife at the fireside is an Amazon wrestling with a flaming dragon. The same moral might be drawn from the fact that the watchdog fights while the wild dog often runs away. Of the husband, as of the house dog, it may often be said that he has been tamed into ferocity. This is especially true of the sort of house represented by the country cottage. It is only in theory that the things are petty and prosaic. A man realistically experiencing them will feel them to be things big and baffling and involving a heavy battle with nature. When we read about cabbages or cauliflowers in the papers, and especially the comic papers, we learn to think of them as commonplace. But if a man of any imagination will merely consent to walk round the kitchen garden for himself, and really look at the cabbages and cauliflowers, he will feel at once that they are vast and elemental things, like the mountains and the clouds. He will feel something almost monstrous about the size and solidity of the things swelling out of that small and tidy patch of ground. There are moods in which that everyday English kitchen plot will affect him as men are affected by the reeking wealth and toppling rapidity of tropic vegetation, the green bubbles and crawling branches of a nightmare. But whatever his mood, he will see that things so large and work so laborious cannot possibly be merely trivial. His reason, no less than his imagination, will tell him that the fight here waged between the family and the field is of all things the most primitive and fundamental. If that is not poetical, nothing is poetical, and certainly not the dingy bohemianism of the artists in the towns. But the point for the moment is that even by the purely artistic test, the same truth is apparent. An artist looking at these things, with a free and a fresh vision, will at once appreciate what I mean by calling them wild rather than tame. It is true of fire, of water, of vegetation, of half a hundred other things. If a man reads about a pig, he will think of something comic and commonplace, chiefly because the word pig sounds comic and commonplace. If he looks at a real pig in a real pigsty, he will have the sense of something too large to be alive, like a hippopotamus at the zoo. This is not a coincidence or a sophistry. It rests on the real and living logic of things. The family is itself a wilder thing than the state. If we mean by wildness 
that it is born of will and choice as elemental and emancipated as the wind. It has its own laws, as the wind has, but properly understood, it is infinitely less subservient than things are under the elaborate and mechanical regulations of legalism. Its obligations are love and loyalty, but these are things quite capable of being in revolt against merely human laws. For merely human law has a great tendency to become merely inhuman law. It is concerned with events that are in the moral world what cyclones and earthquakes are in the material world. People are not born in an infant school any more than they die in an undertaker's shop. These prodigies are private things and take place in the tiny theater of the home. The public systems, the large organization, are a mere machinery for the transport and distribution of things. They do not touch the intrinsic nature of the things themselves. If a birthday present is sent from one family to another, all the legal system, and even all that we call the social system, is only concerned with the present so long as it is a parcel. Nearly all our modern sociology might be called the philosophy of parcels. For that matter, nearly all our modern descriptions of utopia, or the great state, might be called the paradise of postmen. It is in the inner chamber that the parcel becomes a present, that it explodes, so to speak, into its own radiance and real popularity. And it is equally true, so far as that argument is concerned, whether it is a bonbon or a bomb. The essential message is always a personal message. The important business is always private business. And this is, of course, especially with the first of all birthday presents which presents itself at birth, and it is no exaggeration to talk of a bomb as the symbol of a baby. Of course, the same is true of the tragic as of the beatific acts of the domestic drama, of the spade work of the struggle for life, or the Damoclean sword of death. The defense of domesticity is not that it is always happy, or even that it is always harmless. It is rather that it does involve, like all heroic things, the possibilities of calamity, and even of crime. Old Mother Hubbard may find that the cupboard is bare. She may even find a skeleton in the cupboard. All that is involved here is the insistence on the true case for this intimate type of association. That in itself it is certainly not commonplace, and most certainly is not conventional. The conventions belong rather to those wider worldly organizations which are now set up as rivals to it, to the club, to the school, and above all to the state. You cannot have a successful club without rules, but a family will really do without rules exactly in proportion as it is a successful family. What somebody said about the songs of a people could be said much more truly about the jokes of a household. And a joke is, in its nature, a wild and spontaneous thing. Even the modern fanaticism for organization has never really attempted to organize laughter like a chorus. Therefore, we may truly say that these external emblems or examples of something grotesque and extravagant about our private possessions are not mere artistic exercises in the incongruous. They are not, as the phrase goes, mere paradoxes. They are really related to the aboriginal nature of the institution itself and the idea that is behind it. The family really is something as wild and elemental as a cabbage. End of section 38